It's long been said that children are our most valuable resource. Children are our future. And today's children are tomorrow's leaders. But children are also among our most vulnerable populations. In North Carolina, children are found to be victims of neglect, physical, sexual, and cyber abuse. The good news is there is a plethora of agencies and dedicated people working diligently to make that number a downward trend and to provide resources for child victims. One of those people is our guest for this episode of NCJA 1014. Hello, everyone. This is Kirk Puckett. April is designated Child Advocacy Month, and it is a pleasure to have a discussion with Kevin West, the lead instructor with the nonprofit Child Rescue Coalition. In that capacity, this nonprofit organization rescues children from sexual abuse by building technology for law enforcement free of charge to track child predators. Kevin, welcome to our podcast. Very glad to have you and very excited to learn more about the Child Rescue Coalition. Thank you. I'm honored to be here with you today. I want to get right into our questions because I have so many and, and I know that there are people who are listening that may be going Child Rescue Coalition. That is not exactly something that has popped up on my menu before. So let's start out by just giving us an overview about the coalition and its connection to law enforcement in North Carolina. So the Child Rescue Coalition was the brainchild in about 2003. The Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force was working on tracking people sharing child sex abuse material on the internet. Now, we say child sex abuse material rather than child pornography because child pornography is a derogatory term that seems to indicate participation by children, and children don't participate in being sexually abused. They're abused. So in 2003, Flint Waters, a detective and supervisor for the ICAC unit in Wyoming, came up with some ideas on tracking people on the internet sharing child pornography. He made cases, roughly 2,500 cases all across the United States, and sent out leads, which kind of made the rest of the Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force commanders a little upset. And they said, we should work in our own backyard and not try to fill other people's backyards with cases. And so the ICAC commanders got together. At that time, I was serving as the Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force Commander, working for the State Bureau of Investigation and heading up the task force in North Carolina. We got together and, and he came up with some software programming that allowed us to track people based on their jurisdiction and where they actually lived and based on how their IP addresses were showing online. That software evolved from 2003 to 2009 in heavy usage in the Internet Crimes Against Children task forces. In about 2009, a philanthropist in Florida who was the mastermind behind a number of the world's database aggregators like Accurant and a new company that was being started up called TLO, offered and volunteered programming time for using his programmers to essentially put that program on steroids and take the minor programming that Flint Waters had done out of Florida 
and add to it and embellish the program so that we could track better and keep track of what was going on. He started that program then in Florida, and Flint Waters moved to Florida, and we had a, held a meeting in Florida in early 2009 where we come up with some of the ground rules of that program and how that program would actually work. And that program spun off and took off across the Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force world with training being held all over the country between 2009 and 2011. Then in 2011, Hank Asher, the philanthropist, died, and his company passed on to his two daughters. One of his daughters, um, Carly Eust, became the founder of the actual Child Rescue Coalition, the nonprofit that we have today. She took the software and the information and the databases that were being programmed and continued that programming under the nonprofit called Child Rescue Coalition. So the program we have today is based on everything that started in 2003. We're in over 91, 97 countries worldwide, and we teach all over the world. I just got back from a two-week trip to Mexico City teaching the 10 states surrounding Mexico. Mexico City on how to use our software and track child sex abuse material being traded in different online venues. And that's kind of a background on it. In North Carolina, we started using the system in 2003-2004 throughout the course of the Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force in North Carolina. We've probably trained four or five hundred people in North Carolina across the state in how to use the software and how to track people online. And there's probably in North Carolina been thousands of arrests. The usage of this system and tracking people sharing child sex abuse material online. To someone like me who is not technologically savvy, and I dare say there are probably some people listening to this podcast that are in that same boat with me, that piece is pretty intriguing. And certainly I don't want you to get too deep into the technical lingo or too far into the weeds that would compromise what it is that you all do. But can you talk a little bit about the technology piece with just a little bit more detail and particularly its value to law enforcement? Our programmers at Child Rescue Coalition take great pride in using open source software that people in the regular community are using to trade child sex abuse material. I retired in 2021 from Cary Police Department after like 42 years of law enforcement, and they asked me to head up being the training coordinator for all of the training for the company, and I kind of took that position in about 2021, even though I'd been training for them for years. But technically, in the background behind it, the programmers take software that's being used by those people sharing child sex abuse material across the internet, and they take that software and remaster it and put logging programs embedded in it. The software that regular people use enables people to see IP addresses. It enables the um, people to see how much of a file someone says they has. It enables us to track those files based on their digital signatures. Now, the technical term for those digital signatures is hash values, but digital signature is an easy way of thinking of it. The digital signatures are statistically 10 times more accurate in identifying a file than DNA is in identifying an individual. So it's extremely accurate in identifying files. We have amassed a database of digital signatures, not of the child sex abuse material itself, 
but of the digital signatures of child sex abuse material that runs in the billions of files that we can track across the internet. When people use those programs for sharing child sex abuse material, they transmit freely across these internet their IP address, their serial number of the software that they're using. Law enforcement can then use and find people based on where that IP address is located in the world. They can find people in North Carolina. They can find people specific to a county, sometimes specific to cities on where they live. And then they can launch a job into the same type of software that the suspects are using. And that job will go out and try to single source, download directly from an IP address and an identified computer child sex abuse material. The software in in North Carolina leads to countless arrests. It's obviously probable cause for search warrants. Just based off of the data alone, probable cause exists to go to the houses once a court order has been done to determine who owns the IP address and go in and take computers and then start an investigation into what's on the computer, which is how this happens. So there's the technicality of it. There's three levels of cases that can be made with the software. One is a historical case based on the historical data we capture about an IP address where there's plenty of probable cause. Another one is a case where the suspect tells us that they have 100% of certain files that we know are child sex abuse material, and that is a higher level of probable cause. And then the third type of case that can be made by investigators is actual downloads, which would equate to distribution of child sex abuse material across the internet to undercover officers. And all three of those types of cases are being made in North Carolina as we speak. We had a class about two weeks ago here in North Carolina where investigators came to Raleigh. We have another one in April scheduled where there's close to 27 investigators planning on attending that class at the North Carolina ICAC headquarters. Well, along those lines, you talked about your training in Mexico. I assume that this is pretty specialized training for law enforcement to effectively be able to use this software. Can you discuss that process just a bit? So the process for training that we go through, we want to ensure that, I think our biggest goal is ensuring that people who use the software don't quote it inaccurately or don't use it inaccurately in search warrants so that the software and the search warrants get banned by the Supreme Courts. So our training focuses on how to write up search warrants on how to use the software properly and how to quote the results of the software properly and how to put that all together in a coherent search warrant for usage in court that will stand up in court and withstand the ravages of some court cases. We uh, are extremely mindful of Fourth Amendment issues, and nothing we do in the software violates anyone's Fourth Amendment issues in going into, we don't actually go onto someone else's computer. Everything we get, someone else from another computer freely and voluntarily sends us, which is outside the Fourth Amendment uh, requirement for searches to get that information. So it's, it's akin to Capturing an IP address would be akin to seeing a car driving by on the road that's publicly available and writing down the license plate number of the car. The same thing with the rest of the data we capture is publicly available information that anyone could capture. So we stress in our training 
how the system works, how the internet works, how those places that we're targeting on the internet operate underneath the hood, and how to use the data and interpret the data based on that training so that it goes into a coherent search warrant for a judge to be able to understand and a jury to be able to understand so that it's not written in geek terms, so to speak, but it's we want them written in terms that anyone could understand if they read a search warrant. We're cognizant of the fact that in North Carolina, search warrants become public record every day, and we know that some of our information on how we do things gets out there in search warrants, but we try to keep the training private to law enforcement only. We train investigators primarily, but we invite prosecutors in the area to come to the training so they will understand the system. We invite uh, forensics people who are actually doing the forensics on the cases to come in and look at how we capture our data and how the system displays the data and how to interpret that information so that they can get a better handle on what to look for forensically on the cases. And then we also invite into our classes intelligence analysts that are supporting different groups in law enforcement across the state. But it is a law enforcement-only software, and it is law enforcement-only that we train in those venues that we, that we train around the world. So it sounds like you could bring a law enforcement officer into a classroom that may be like me and not very technologically savvy. And by the conclusion of the training, they're going to have a pretty good handle on how to use it. That's exactly correct. We have many officers that come in that don't have a lot of computer experience. Obviously, computer experience is helpful in doing these things. But by the time they're done with the class, they'll understand how to interpret the data They won't be able to write programming for the data, obviously, and frankly, I don't write programming either. I just understand the system and teach other people how to understand the system and be able to write it up in a search warrant where they can go and look at what's on somebody's computer in in their home. I want to take this a a step further and almost kind of get into the human trafficking aspect. Is there a rescue value that can be attached to the technology? And I guess specifically what I'm looking for is, do you know of any validated cases of law enforcement actually removing children from sexual exploitation as a result of your work? It happens all the time. And kind of a background on that, there's been a number of studies done One of the studies done by the U.S. Bureau of Prisons by uh, um, researchers named Dr. Bork and Dr. Hernandez, they studied people that were in the federal prison just for child sex abuse material, for possession or distribution of child sex abuse material. They studied, made a study over the course of somewhere between five to seven years, and they put these people through a treatment process in the U.S. Bureau of Prisons. At the end of their study, and through the use of polygraphs and volunteer from the study participants, they discovered that the people that were in jail just for child sex abuse material, 89.5% of them ultimately admitted to hands-on sexually abusing kids. Now, that's a staggering figure when you look at it, and it's an actual published study. It's called the Butner Study. It was done at Butner Correctional Institute. That study seems to indicate and does indicate that people that possess child sex abuse material are people that sexually abuse children. Throughout the course of using our software, there's been over 3,000 children rescued from homes in the process of being sexually abused when 
investigators get into the homes. There's several examples I can cite and come up with. I was teaching a class in Ecuador in October of this past year, and I was teaching with an investigator who teaches with us sometimes named Freddie from Costa Rica. And while we were in class, he got a text message from his team back in Costa Rica. They had used the data from our system combined with some data from the National Center for Missing Exploited Children to write a search warrant to get into the home of a suspect who was sharing child sex abuse material online. When they went into the home that morning, early in the morning, they found the suspect in bed with an 11-year-old boy having sex with the 11-year-old boy as they were coming in the house. They also discovered that the young boy's mother had sold him to the man that very morning and sold him for sexual servitude to the man. So that child was rescued and that man was arrested that morning as a direct result of use of of our system. I could cite probably hundreds of examples like that. I was teaching in Australia and, and in front of the class, and we have a system for triaging which one of our cases may be hands-on offenders and which ones may not be hands-on offenders based on the type of collection, the type of material they had. And we were training this aspect in front of the class, and the top offender in Brisbane, Australia at the time happened to have some of those factors that we were talking about. And so the head of the uh, internet group over there, a guy named John Rouse, jumped out and did an emergency court order to identify the IP address. And they went and did a search warrant that very evening while we were talking the next morning and reported the results to us the next morning. They found hidden cameras in the 14-year-old girl's bedroom that her father had hidden in the bedroom. They found hidden cameras in the bathroom. They found images and videos of her being sexually molested, images and videos of her friends in various stages of undress when they had come over. And so our software is used worldwide to actually rescue children from those who are perpetrating these crimes upon children because the ones that are molesting children are the ones that are making child sex abuse material. I can remember a case in Morrisville where we and Carrie worked with a Morrisville investigator and we wrote up the search warrant. I ghost wrote the search warrant for Morrisville based on the data from our system. And we went into the home. And that morning while we were in the home, a seven-year-old boy comes up to me and says, my daddy does me in the pooper every day. And that's kind of crass language, but that's exactly the type of thing that we find when we go out on these cases and children are rescued on a daily basis. We also know that many children who might have been sexually molested are rescued because those people that look at materials called child sex abuse material are actually fantasizing. And just like someone who collects baseball cards, someone who collects baseball cards would go to a baseball game if given the opportunity. And in the child sex abuse image world, those collecting child sex abuse images If given the chance, they would participate in sexually abusing a child. And so we feel like that not only do we rescue children who come forward and say they've been sexually molested, but we rescue children on a daily basis who would be sexually molested in the future based on the fantasies of the adults that are living in the home with them. But one last piece on that. Many people in the world and many people in law enforcement mistakenly think that child sex abuse images are made in third world countries by people that have harems of little girls that they keep locked up. That's not true. 
child sex abuse material, the majority of it is made in the United States by men sexually abusing their children and producing images as trophies of that sexual abuse and then trading them on the internet to get other people's trophy images of sexual abuse back and forth. And that's how child sex abuse material is made, not some guy lurking, holding kids hostage and making images. Now, there are some of those that have been made over the years, and I don't want to discount that fact, but the majority of child sex abuse images are homemade. Well, indeed, it is a sad commentary on our society. But thank goodness there are folks like you and technology out there that, you know, you don't know that it will ever come to a screeching halt. But you can certainly put some barricades in front of it, certainly slow some things down. So uh, once again, I want to kind of go into the numbers you talked a little bit about earlier. As long as we're kind of on the subject, maybe a little bit of an assumption on my part. Obviously, your technology can lead to probable cause for search warrants, and those often produce arrest, as you said earlier. But just looking specifically at North Carolina, do you have any idea what those numbers look like? For the last 365 days in North Carolina, there's 693 unique serial numbers called GUIDs, globally unique identifiers. When you install certain software on your computer, it installs a serial number that identifies itself across the world that's just as unique as a fingerprint. And there's 33 of those in the state of North Carolina in the last year that haven't been touched, haven't been arrested, haven't been um, searched, haven't been put in jail. And so there's any given date, there's that many people that could be arrested right now, search warrants done right now, given the resources in North Carolina. I know that many agencies spend a lot of money on it, and some agencies in North Carolina, frankly, don't do anything on it. They say, oh, that's somebody else's problem in North Carolina, while they spend money on other things in, in law enforcement. But that's kind of one of my big pet peeves in law enforcement is many law enforcement agencies turn a blind eye to sexual abuse of children because they don't know about it and don't want to know about it. Whereas many other law enforcement agencies, the North Carolina ICAC in particular, and ICAC is Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force, headed by the State Bureau of Investigation, is actively pushing and recruiting and trying to help pay for and train officers all over North Carolina in order to be able to go after these numbers that we're just talking about just in North Carolina alone. And the North Carolina Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force has pushed that for quite a number of years. And uh, we've had active participants in pretty much all counties in North Carolina. At one point in time, someone has been an active participant in looking for these numbers and, and tracking these children online. Well, hopefully this podcast will serve as a vehicle, maybe a bit of a spotlight or bell ringer or however you want to say it, to those folks that are funding programs that maybe they can dig a little bit deeper into their wallets and find some additional resources, again, to kind of slow these numbers down because it is just a, a horrific crime that affects children not only now, but that will affect them years and years later. Kevin, our time has expired. I just want to thank you so much. It has been an absolute honor to hear about the work that you are doing, to hear about the work from the Child Rescue Coalition, and just simply on behalf of law enforcement throughout the state and the world. Thank you so much for, for doing what you do. 
Thank you for having me and good luck to the people out there that hear this and want to uh, provide more funding and get more funding for their agencies. And certainly we'll have some details in our show notes that will accompany this podcast as how you can get in touch with Kevin West and also more information regarding the Child Rescue Coalition. As indicated at the beginning of this episode, children are, in fact, our most valuable but also most vulnerable resource. April is Child Advocacy Month, and the Justice Academy in North Carolina is dedicated to joining the many North Carolina agencies working on behalf of those who, not by their own choices, become victims of neglect, physical, sexual, or cyber abuse. Our guest for this episode has been Kevin West, lead instructor with the nonprofit Child Rescue Coalition, just one of the many law enforcement partners working to ensure the safety of our children. Until our next episode, please stay safe. NCJA 1014.